0: Welcome to the Weekly Review. It is Friday, uh, February 12th, 2016, coming at you from Mutiny Radio here in the Mission. Uh, Today on the show, we have an interview with Nia Levy King. Uh, Nia is the author of the book, Queer and Trans Artists of Color, um, which is wonderful. I highly recommend it. And there's a volume two coming out in the fall. So we taped the interview earlier this morning, and we will be playing that around 1 p.m., so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll be talking about some news, which is, I guess, on the average disturbing as per usual, because that's the world that we live in, and we'll be covering some topics such as the police police misconduct, which is not surprising, um, the push to make uh, cannabis an alternative uh, for medicine, which... Uh, Ha- should have been done a long, long time ago, um, as well as, unfortunately, some uh, disturbing laws that are in the works, or have been in the works, to ban trans folks from using the bathroom, because that's such a great use of time and energy. Uh, so thankfully, there's been a lot of resistance to that. However, the fact that people are still going out of their way, especially uh, for to make it difficult for youth to use the bathroom, I think that's pretty messed up, and we'll be talking about that a little bit. Not too much to rant. Oh, there's plenty to rant about, but I'll probably be keeping it pretty short in the opening segment of the show today. Some I'll talk about some positive things that happened. Uh, So there have been a lot of protests around the Super Bowl, which already happened and that's done with. And uh, a lot of folks came out. There was a protest a week ago Wednesday, and there was one on Saturday, uh, the Saturday before the Super Bowl. And folks met up around Civic Center and then marched down Market Street, and then we went to Yerba Buena. Uh, like the the park around there and started up an open mic around there, which was neat and a lot of folks got up to speak And it was interesting speaking in a in an environment like that. I've done a few of those in in the past and The cool thing about doing it out, you know, just outdoors is that you find folks who? Didn't necessarily know that was going on or didn't know the protest was going on and they kind of come by and listen to what people have to say They also had a lot of law enforcement there so kind of use that as a opportunity to get them to listen to what's actually going on and to listen to the people if they decided to listen. So that was, uh, that was a good experience. Um, and then also at the Board of Supervisors meetings on Tuesdays at City Hall, they it's open to public comment and I've gone before to support people who are speaking and then uh, I decided, uh, well, I got an invite through some folks at the Coalition on Homelessness, which is an incredible organization and I highly recommend checking them out and supporting them as you're able. And so they had uh, pages, pages, a page with statistics, and that's one way of just kind of getting it out to the, the masses uh, or the people in positions of authority or people in government is to talk about what's actually happening and who's who's really being affected by the criminalization of the poor. So I ended up uh, going up to public uh, to speak at the Board of Supervisors meeting, and they allow people two minutes to speak and to say anything that they want, which is great to have that opportunity, because that's not the case in some places in the world. And so I was able to read some statistics and uh, about how there's uh, 7,000 on any given night, 7,000 human beings, people, who are homeless in San Francisco. That's a lot of people, that's 7,000, and 3,300 of which are children, and about, 30% 30% are LGBTQ, uh, the majority are people of color, and for every one shelter bed, uh, there is 5.5 homeless folks. So there's a huge, huge problem here in, in San Francisco that's not being adequately addressed. There's also there's an article, I'll have to look this up and find it, about these two nuns, French nuns, who've been around for a while, and all they do is they they, they cook and they, they feed folks. They cook lunch like three times a week, and they cook dinner. Two times a week, they feed hundreds of people. People line up, and they their food's supposed to be really good. And they are being threatened with eviction, and they live in the the building where they serve folks. And someone was saying this is very compare comparable to Sister Act Two, like which was based in San Francisco. The idea of you know evicting nuns who are out there helping people. And I know there's some, you know, some folks who are not too happy about with with the Catholic Church. I think looking beyond that, the fact that people who are out there feeding the poor, and the fact that they are. Uh, threatened with eviction is just disgusting that's the word that comes up and that's the word that i used uh when i was speaking uh during public comment because there is also san francisco is the city in california we have the distinction with the most uh laws against uh homelessness and and poverty there's 22 ordinances so which make it legal for a police officer to harass you if you are on the street And that's that is disgusting. I can't think of any other word that suits it more than just disgusting. The fact that people are treated so inhumanely here in a city that's supposed to be a sanctuary city. So, uh, started off with uh, just talking about the statistics, which just hammering those out. And I was a little bit nervous. Definitely, like I'm used to performing, however, not in that kind of environment. Certainly, not with folks wearing suits. Um, But by the end, I felt a lot more comfortable, and I was able to like look them in the eye, which is a a good tool to use, and talked a little bit about my own experience and just when people ask me about the trans community in San Francisco, and I say, "What community? You know, the folks who have been pushed out, the folks who are afraid to leave their house, a friend who left and cannot afford to come back, and he's no longer with us. And what does that mean? Uh, The idea that there is a, it's that folks would want to come here due to it ideally being a more accepting place and or being able to seek health care. Um, what good is that if people can't afford to live here? So it kind of drove the point, point home and it felt really good to be able to say that to a group of lawmakers who have do have some say and whose actions uh, can, can change things. I'm all for changing the systems and breaking down the systems and starting things new entirely that are totally outside that. And I'm also, I do have, I'm not that cynical where I don't, where I, I do feel that one can hopefully, ideally, work with folks who are uh, elected officials to help educate them and kind of force them to make things better um, with what, what power they do have. So, yes, I recommend that folks do get involved in any way possible to, to make things ideally better for everyone as we can, as we are able. So uh, that's that's about all I'll say about that. Open up the show with a song, which I play uh, quite a bit on the show. I love it. It's by Felix Lee. It's called Summer Song Solstice 14. You can find that on SoundCloud by typing in Felix Lee 4. Felix is a great friend and a wonderful person and a great musician. So I'm always happy to... play that song we'll be playing some more music later on in the show our original tagline was the news is depressing and sometimes we play music and the news is almost always depressing and we almost always play music there are some positive news stories and i'll start off with one that's on the more positive end of things and it comes from elizabeth warren because she speaks the truth and it's good to have people who speak the truth in positions of authority uh we need a lot more of that a lot. If we're going to continue, ideally like to live in a world where n- there's no authority figures at all, and we can all just get along. Uh, for the time being, though, when there are folks who are elected and, and do speak the truth and do seek to help people, I think that's a wonderful thing. So this article comes from The Guardian. Elizabeth Warren asks CDC to consider legal marijuana as alternative painkiller. And this is what people have been saying for thousands of years. Unfortunately, uh, marijuana has been criminalized. Uh, thankfully, that's there's an undoing of that, and as more education comes about, folks will realize what a helpful uh, tool um, and medicine uh, cannabis can be, and also uh, a great alternative, because it's a lot healthier than a lot of pills that are being produced. Uh, it grows in the ground, it's natural, and it has been around for a really, really, really long time. So let's see what this has to say, this this article. Uh, The Massachusetts senator called for more research to be done on medical marijuana and prescription opioid addiction amid abuse and overdose epidemic. And this article was written by Amanda Holpuck in New York. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren has asked the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, to consider the role legal marijuana could play in prescription opioid epidemic, in the prescription opioid epidemic. Warren asked for more research into medical marijuana and painkiller addiction in a letter to the CDC director Thomas Frieden. Opioid abuse is a national concern and warrants swift and immediate action, Warren wrote. Her request comes as politicians, including the presidential nominees, search for the best response to the opioid epidemic. The use of prescription opioids doubled between 2000 and 2014, according to the CDC, and Massachusetts experienced its highest number of unintentional opioid overdose deaths in 2014, with nearly 1,100 people succumbing to overdose deaths. Warren applauded the CDC's actions so far to curb the epidemic, but called on the agency to look at whether medical marijuana could be an alternative painkiller. I'm going to answer that now with yes, it can. She also urged the agency to quickly finalize its guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain and called for increased collaboration between the cdc and other federal health agencies to determine the long-term effects of opioid use in children and the increased use of the powerful synthetic opioid uh, fentanyl nestled in with these recommendations is a call to consider the role of marijuana legalization in the crisis specifically Warren requested the agency to provide more information on the use, uptake, and effectiveness of medical marijuana as an alternative to opioids for pain treatment in states where it is legal. She also asked them to look into the impact of the legalization of medical and recreational marijuana on opioid overdose deaths. Medical marijuana is illegal under federal law, which is a significant hurdle for any federal agency hoping to study its effects and makes it impossible to prescribe through a pharmacist. But using the plant for some medical purposes is legal in 23 states, including Massachusetts plus Washington, D.C. Marijuana is also legal for recreational use in Colorado, Washington State, Oregon, and Alaska. Medical cannabis laws were tied with lower state-level opioid overdose death rates, according to a study published in the December 2014 issue of Journal of the American Medical Association. And hundreds of people in Massachusetts who are addicted to opioids are being treated with medical marijuana. So there you have it. It's a lot of what we've been saying for a while uh, healthy alternatives, healthy alternatives. And, uh, let's hope that, uh, more research can be done. And that's been an obstacle for a long time. People who've been wanting to do research on it have not been able to because it's illegal, which is, uh, that's, that's quite sad. Something that helps a lot of people, uh, not being able to be studied. To, to prove their case however um, I'm, I'm optimistic in, the, in this and in the fact that it medical is legal now in 23 states although depending on, on the states you go it, there's a lot of uh, I guess bureaucracy in the way and then in New York state even there's not that many dispensaries that have opened and the list of ailments that you can qualify that you have it's very limited compared to other states like here in California so hopefully although things are moving along slowly um, here's to a future where it will be accessible for absolutely everybody Moving along to the police doing stupid shit, which seems to be a recurring theme in life. Uh, this article comes from DNAinfo.com, and nearly half of police union statements on shootings are false, which is not a surprise uh, to me anyway, and most likely the listeners here as well. And this was written by Joe Ward. Um, so the, the police, the, their forms were hacked. Uh, and some information was released, and I believe that this article will have something um, shedding light on what was revealed in that. So, coming out of Chicago, a study of the police union statements given immediately after police involved shootings shows that the union has provided a false narrative in nearly half of its statements since 2012, according to reports. A joint Chicago reader and city. Bureau Investigation, also oh, is separate, uh, found that 15 of the 35 statements given by the Fraternal Order of Police, Lodge 7 spokesman Pat Camden, after shootings since 2012, have contained facts that were later proven false or misleading through legal testimony, video, media investigations, or official police statements. Camden has generally been one of the first to comment after a Chicago police officer shoots a civilian. While the the police department's media arm generally waits hours or days before releasing statements on such events, Camden's narrative has already become the prevailing story of the shooting in media reports, according to the Reader and City Bureau. The false narratives not only do damage to the shooting victims and their families, they also hurt the police department's standing in the community, the report alleges. This practice of the police union controlling the message after a fatal police shooting is not the norm in most big city most US cities according to the reader. I cannot remember on any occasion when the LA police union made any kind of statement about a police shooting, Stephen Downing, a former LAPD deputy chief, told the reader. Camden's standing up there representing an official body. The public is listening to him represent the police organization, even though it's the union. The police department and city should be objecting to that. If they're not, then they're complicit. Camden told the reader that it that it is his practice to preface his statement by saying uh, his information is second-hand and has not yet been verified. In the Washington Post last year, Camden said of his official police union comments, hearsay is basically what I'm putting out at this point. The prevailing narrative in many of Chicago's police-involved shootings is that officers' use of lethal force was necessary because they were in fear of their lives. Later, through either dash cam footage and courtroom testimony, that narrative has been proven false many times. Here are some of the cases where the reader reported that Camden's statements misled the public. Laquan McDonald, in the now infamous fatal shooting of McDonald by officer Jason Van Dyke, Camden originally told reporters that the teen lunged at Van Dyke with a knife in a clear-cut case of self-defense. Dash cam footage has shown that the teen was walking away from officers, and the disparity in stories has led to widespread protests. The ouster of former police uh, superintendent Gary McCarthy and calls for Mayor Rahm Emanuel's resignation. Rikia Boyd. Boyd was standing with a group near Douglas Park in 2012 when off-duty officer Dante Servin opened fire on them, killing Boyd and injuring Antonio Cross. In this case, Camden said Cross approached Servan's car and pointed a gun in his direction. The public later learned that Cross was actually holding a cell phone. Jamal Moore. The 23-year-old Moore was fatally shot by an officer in 2012. Camden initially said that Moore was a robbery suspect and that he had been at- that he had attacked officers as they attempted to arrest him. Moore was in fact not armed and had just been run over by a police car before he was shot twice. Surveillance footage later showed. So uh whew, that's gonna take a, a moment now so this is just this is just one example of one police department how they how they handle uh how they handle uh what they choose to share and that's and that's something that needs to be discussed is that who is that's the question that keeps on coming up who polices the police so we're going to take a music break and we'll be back with some more news the weekly review that was L107 with Connie the name of that song okay so gonna be doing a few more news stories Uh, this is some depressing stuff just a a warning and that's how the show is pretty much every week as reporting what's going on in the world Um, so in dealing with uh, police's mistreatment of citizens uh, again a recurring theme in life Uh, this article comes from planettransgender.com A trans man with Asperger's shot dead by police, media misgenders, and dead names. Uh, So this was uh, added by, uh, written by Amy Walker, and this came out on February 5th. A transgender man with Asperger's who became incredibly well known through the internet after a touching video of him with his service dog last year has been shot and killed by police officers in Arizona. Caden Clark, 24 years old, was shot by police officers and later died in a hospital after an officer was were called to his residence for a suicide call. According to reports on AZ Family, where they misgender and incorrectly name Caden, police entered his home and found him with a knife. Caden told police that he had a knife and was going to hurt himself. Police drew their firearms and shot him. In a statement from Detective Esteban Flores, he said, uh, and this says, I apologize in advance, but during this statement, Flores repeatedly misgenders Caden. And I'm not even going to repeat the misgendering. I'm just going to call, use uh, Caden's preferred pronoun as he. So um, he had one knife that we know of. He had something else. We're not sure what it was that the officer said. It was dark inside the room when he made contact with them uh he approached them with the knife oh fucking cops extended it out and they felt threatened so oh goodness kaden gained attention last year when he posted a video where he tried to punch himself whilst having an emotional moment with his rottweiler samson um while his and his emotional uh, uh having an emotional moment, and his Rottweiler Samson comforts him and stops him from hurting himself. The video went viral, and Caden even spoke about the incident and living with Asperger's to the Huffington Post, where he was also misgendered. Caden posted frequently about living with Asperger's, uh, as well as posting several videos about his transition. Caden's death has been reported on by several websites, but each and every one of them has misgendered him and used the incorrect name. Caden was an amazing individual who tried to shine a light on the struggles that people living with Asperger's face, and he has been shown nothing but disrespect from every single person um, uh, who has shown no respect for his gender or his identity. To call Caden anything other than Caden or to refer to him as female spits in the face of his memory. It shows disrespect, and it should be called out whenever it is seen. It's a horrible, disrespectful thing to do, and it disgusts me. As of the moment, the officers involved in the shooting have been placed on administrative leave. Unfortunately, they were not wearing body cameras. What a surprise. So we cannot know exactly what happened in Caden's home, but from all reports, it would appear that police officers attended a call for help from someone who was suicidal, someone who made them aware that they had a knife when they arrived and indicated that he only wanted to hurt himself. In response, those police officers shot and killed him. To me, that sounds like murder. I'm sure that there will be an investigation into these events and I hope that the truth comes out and that people face the justice that they deserve. Unfortunately, People can't even show Caden enough respect to use the correct name and pronouns so that kind of justice will probably never come rest in peace, Caden. And the hashtags are, his name was Caden and hashtag RIP Caden Clark. So this is quite a disturbing turn of events and this happens a lot and we can see the recurring patterns um, in the police saying that they're feeling threatened and then murdering somebody. Uh, it's just, it's just disgusting. That's the word. That's the, all the the word. I I have a lot of other words to use and I'll just repeat disgusting. Um, and, uh, what a loss and how many people's lives are lost due to murderous police. It's just disgusting. So moving on and there will be some happy trans stories. I will find them. They are out there. I'm sure Uh, this comes from, I think, Part of it has to do with people becoming more out and more public now, and then there's a reaction to it. There's the backlash that happened. There was a this book that came out in the, about, uh, called Backlash, and it was about feminism and how in the 1980s, there was a lot of backlash towards women's rights due to progress that had been made in the decades before. So when people are out and expressing themselves and just wanting equal rights, wanting to be seen as who they are and be respected, then people um, somehow feel threatened And instead of just making the way for other folks to be themselves, they have to um, push against that and do what they can against that to punish people. And that's really reprehensible. So this is one instance of that happening. And also just using the law to do that is gross. So this comes uh, from Uh, Slate.com. Anti-transgender bathroom bills are unconstitutional, among other things. And this was written by Scott Skinner Thompson. Uh, As state legislatures reconvene for 2016, a rash of bills have been proposed that would would exclude transgender people from using the restrooms that align with their gender identity and outward gender expression. In other words, the bills seek to prevent a transgender woman who looks and presents as a woman, who is a woman, uh, from using the women's restroom. Instead, she would be forced to use a men's restroom where she would stand out like a sore thumb. These papers to pee, or genital check bills, violate constitutional privacy protections. For example, in Washington State, a bill has been introduced that would empower public and private entities to bar transgender people from gender-segregated restrooms if the individual had not undergone gender, gender confirmation surgery, sometimes referred to as genital reassignment surgery. In South Dakota, A bill recently passed by the House of Representatives would prevent a student whose chromosomes and anatomy, uh, as identified at birth, did not align with a gender-segregated restroom from using that restroom in a public school. And in Virginia, a bill would impose a fine on any student who did not use the bathroom corresponding to the sex listed on their birth certificate. Luckily, it appears as if this particular bill was defeated uh, in committee on Tuesday. Currently in Virginia, the gender marker on a birth certificate will only be amended if an individual undergoes a medical procedure. If passed and enforced, these bills would violate an individual's constitutional right to informational privacy. As I detailed in... Privacy, an article in the Northwestern University Law Review, the Due Process Clause of the U.S. Constitution prevents the government from disclosing individuals' intimate, sensitive information, including someone's LGBTQ identity. This is particularly so if the information is likely to subject the individual to discrimination, harassment, or violence, as is tragically the case for many transgender individuals several federal courts have unambiguously recognized that there are constitutional limits on the government's ability to disclose one's queer status for example in the case of powell versus shriver the second circuit court of appeals held that uh, the excruciatingly private and intimate nature of transsexualism for persons who wish to preserve privacy in the matter is really beyond debate, and the Third Circuit has concluded that it is difficult to imagine a more private matter than one's sexuality, and uh, less likely, and a less likely probability that the government would have a legitimate interest in disclosure of sexual identity. Sexual orientation, which of course is different than gender, uh, is an intimate as, uh, aspect of one's personality entitled to privacy protection. Even the Supreme Court, while not specifically addressing the issue of gender identity privacy, has acknowledged the existence of a constitutional right to limit disc- discourse, uh, disclosure of personal information. And in Oberge. Auber- Obergefell v. Hodges, where the court overturned state bans on same-sex marriage, the Supreme Court exclaimed that the liberty guaranteed by the Constitution includes the individual right to define and express their identity. As such, proposed bills that seek to bar, punish, or fine individuals who use restrooms corresponding to their gender identity, but not corresponding to certain discrete aspects of their anatomy, Unconstitutionally, publicly out and disseminate in, uh, intimate information regarding transgender individuals. These laws out transgender individuals in both subtle and direct ways. If, to be enforced, the bills require individuals to somehow prove that their so called biological sex matches their gender of the bathroom, they will be forced to disclose sensitive information about their sex and medical history. Indeed, all people, not just transgender people, could ostensibly be asked to provide their biological sex before using a restroom, meaning that the invasive policy privacy violations is not only a transgender problem. A law that implicitly or explicitly includes any such inspection regime is plainly unconstitutional. More subtly, uh, even a policy without a rigorous enforcement mechanism that nevertheless requires people to use the restrooms corresponding to their sex assigned at birth or genital anatomy outs transgender individuals because their appearances or their appearance will often not com- comport with the sex they were assigned at birth. So if a transgender man uses the women's restroom, it may become obvious that he is transgender or gender nonconforming. Courts have begun to recognize that such indirect outing of trans people violates a constitutional right to privacy. For example, a court in Alaska held that the DMV's failure to have a policy permitting transgender people to change their gender marker on their driver's license violated the state constitution because a transgender person was outed every time they presented an ID that did not comport with their gender expression. In November, a federal court in Michigan reached a similar decision, concluding that Michigan's restrictive policy for changing the gender marker on a driver's license indirectly outed trans people. Not only are trans individuals outed by such laws, potentially uh, subjecting them to harassment and abuse, these bills are likely to cause more of a disturbance to others using the the restroom because trans people will now be forced to use a bathroom that does not match their outward appearance. Moreover, Even if a person were relegated to a single stall unisex bathroom by such bills, they would still be outed and made conspicuous by their repeated avoidance of a shared public restroom. Courts have already established that the government may not publicly disseminate sensitive, intimate information absent a compelling government interest. The bills being considered by state legislatures flatly violate this constitutional norm by outing transgender people every time they attempt to use the restroom. Lawmakers should reject these bills and permit everyone the ability to pee in peace. Amen. All right, um, and maybe, you know, down the road we'll have just completely unisex bathrooms because at the end of the day, the toilets don't really care what, what genitals folks have. It's really the humans who are doing the doing this uh, doing the damage and finding reasons for people to be afraid of one another that don't need to be there at all. Moving along, here's a local story. This comes from the SFist. 71% of San Francisco homeless once had homes in San Francisco. And this is written by Caleb Pershan. Uh, there's a lot to learn from the Homeless Point in Time Count and Survey Comprehensive Report of 2015, which is online in its entirety. But one detail uh, to which uh, so- Socket Site draws attention is the percent of nearly 7,000 homeless San Franciscans who were once San Francisco residents with homes. And here in the article, they have a chart. Uh, Which is San Francisco point in time homeless count, uh, unsheltered and sheltered population trend. Specifically, that share has swollen to 71%, suggesting that much of San Francisco's homelessness epidemic is homegrown, the product of factors within the city proper. This figure runs counter to a popular theory that the city is so generous with its assistance, money, and programs that indigent people flock here from elsewhere, and that the majority of those on the street ca- came from elsewhere. Conducted by the nonprofit Applied Survey Research, the point-in-time count employs a blitz method, but it's basically just a headcount of sheltered and unsheltered homeless that you can read about here, and they provide a link. And so uh, they have a chart here, a graphic, and it has San Francisco, which is 71%, and then other, from another county in, in California is 19%, and from out of state is 10%. 71% of respondents reported they were living in San Francisco at the time they most recently became homeless, an increase from 61% in 2013. Of those, nearly half, 49% had lived in San Francisco for 10 years or more. 11% had lived in San Francisco for less than one year. of respondents reported they were living out of state at the time they lost their housing. 19% reported they were living in another county in California. 6% reported they were living in Alameda County at the time. 3% in San Mateo, 2% in Marin, 2% Contra Costa, and 1% in Santa Clara County. Meanwhile, the Chronicle reports that the city now allocates a record $241 million to homeless services, a whole $84 million more than when Mayor Lee took office in 2011. But where, the paper asks, is that going? And that's a great question. Answer, all over the place, and in such a way as to make keeping track difficult or impossible. The city has over 400 contracts with 76 private organizations, most of them nonprofits, for providing services to the homeless. And no single system tracks the effects of that $241 uh, million annual investment as it's spread out among them. Calls for a tracking system that could tell outreach workers who the sickest among the homeless population are and where they are within the system at any given time have been made for over a decade. However, no plan for any such system yet exists. As Supervisor Aaron Peskin puts it, there's no question it has gotten exponentially worse. How the city spends a quarter of a billion a year, I have not figured out. It's not working. And that also just brings up the, what happened in Utah when they decided to actually give homeless people homes. And imagine if they were to, to do that here, I think that would be a, a, a wise thing to do. So we'll take a little bit of a break and we'll be playing the interview with uh, Nia Levy King, um, a little bit after 1 PM. So definitely stay tuned for that. Play a song by an artist named Kenna heard about a few years ago. This came up in my iTunes. So we'll play this and be back with some more news. Welcome back. That was Kenna with Free Time. That's a great song. I still enjoy it years later. That's a sign of a good song. So we'll be doing one more quick story. There's a couple more coming up we'll be doing after the interview and we'll be playing the interview with Nia Levy King around one o'clock, which is very, very shortly. So here's a quick little article we'll do uh, in the meantime. And this comes from Boing Boing. Uh, It's a great website. They have good stories and lots of information that's worth checking out. So, the author of this is Mark uh, Frauenfelder, and uh, this was just published today. Uh, New York Times threatens to sue publisher of an art book critical of the paper's war coverage. Uh, here on the show, not am not a fan of violence or war. And the media outlets, which sell it and uh, sometimes want to get people involved uh, through the use of propaganda to support... Uh, violent actions. And we're not, we're not a fan of that. I think most people are not. So uh, it's great that uh, this book is, is holding the paper accountable. The critically acclaimed War is Beautiful, the New York Times' pictorial guide to the glamour of armed conflict, examines the ways in which the newspaper happily propagated the Bush administration's lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that resulted in a senseless war that hurt millions of people and immensely enriched Halliburton, Blackwater, and the Carlisle Group, and other companies with close ties to the Bush and the Cheney families. As Ben Collins of The Daily Beast writes, the book makes an artful, journalistic point. Photography on the front page of the paper of record depicted the conflict in rosy, gorgeous, cinematic ways, like the first scene in Apocalypse Now. And the book's author, David Shields, bought the rights to use all the photos in the book. Why, then, is the New York Times suing the publisher for $19,000? Because the inside back cover of the book is decorated with 64 thumbnail photos from the front pages of the New York Times. We didn't expect we'd have a First Amendment fight, Daniel Power, owner of Powerhouse Books told the Daily Beast. Plus, we licensed the damn images and compensated these photographers for their work. Now, the paper contends they're just trying to collect an invoice for $19,000, even though this is almost definitely a textbook case of fair use. Uh, Thumbnails of copyrighted materials were protected speech dating back to a very specific case, just like this one uh, about Grateful Dead posters 10 years ago. Licensing content is not quelling speech, said Rhodes. Ha. We licensed all of the photos within the book to Powerhouse, with the exception of the 64 pages the sixty-four pages ones, which allowed them to freely express their opinions on our war photography. The Daily Beast uses the same licensing agent, PARS, we do. So uh, it'll be very interesting to to take a look at this book. And they have a, a nice photo here, and it says "War is beautiful." The New York Times pictorial guide to the glamour of armed conflict, and it's written by David Shields. So uh definitely looking into taking a look at that book and also uh just to call into question media outlets which uh want to sell war and continue to do so and and politicians for that matter you know the the elections coming up and i haven't spoken too much about that i think as we move further along and it's interesting to see people fighting a lot online about it and just uh there should be this idea that we want to help each other and like listen to each other's ideas instead of stomping on one another. But that seems to be that's what my newsfeed is, is like a lot of the time, and that's, that's very disheartening. I, of course, am not a fan of oligarchs or warmongers, so you can interpret that however you like. I also would like to live in a world where we didn't have to elect a president and we could just get along fine without having to put people in positions of authority in positions of authority. And money was not involved in politics at all. So maybe we can live in a world like that, we we shall see. So I'm going to get the uh, the uh, interview set up, I'll be playing some music in the meantime. And uh, yeah, everyone sit tight and I'll be ready to go in a little bit. And uh, just a promotion here, it's a mutiny radio here at the corner of 21st and Florida, there's always some good shows and programs happening here all the time. And there's a comedy festival coming up in March, so check that out. There's a lot of info on Facebook about that. And yeah, here's some music, and we'll be back with uh, the interview very shortly.
1: Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes my bones And this loneliness won't leave me alone Listen Two thousand miles I roam Just to make this dock my home Now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh Sitting on the dock of the bay
0: And coming right up is our interview with uh, Nia Levy-King. Stay tuned. We'll be right back in a few moments. Now is our interview with uh, Nia Levy King that happened earlier this morning. Sorry? Is, that, is this better? Yes. Okay, great, great. All right, so I'm going to play this later. I will see about editing it. Uh, so yeah. um, so uh, so Nia is the, the author questions. of uh, Queer and Trans Artists of Color, and volume two will be coming out this fall.
2: Well, it started when I was at Mills College writing my thesis in Ethnic Studies. Um, I wrote it about this group called Mangoes with Chili, Mm -hmm. which is a queer and trans people of color performance art organization that is actually, this year is their last year because both of the founders have been displaced by gentrification and the rising cost of living in the Bay. But they were around for 10 years and produced a number of really amazing cabarets and tours of uh, queer and trans people of color performance art, everything from burlesque, to drag, to spoken word, to hip hop, and other types of musical performances, Um, I was really influenced by them and I wanted to see how other folks were impacted by their work. And so my thesis was um, interviewing the co-founders, artists that have performed with Mangoes, and also audience members about, you know, how Mangoes has impacted their lives, and so the podcast and the book are really kind of an extension of that, where it's not exclusively focused on mangoes anymore, but it is focused on political art by queer and trans
0: people of color. Awesome! That's very cool. Um, yeah, it's it's great. I like, guess as, as a trans person to hear from other you know trans artists out there and to to see what other work is being done and to see that you know folks are being recognized for the work that they're doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of the importance of documenting, you know, queer and trans POC cultural production or art, I kind of use the two interchangeably, um, is that a lot of folks don't have a lot of resources. A lot of the organizations that do resource our work are very short-lived because they don't have tremendous access to resources either. And then there's also like I don't know, there, there's a lot of reasons that queer and trans folks don't get to make and share their art, you know, some yeah. of it is just basically trying to survive yes. capitalism and having to prioritize that, and art is generally not what pays the bills for yep. the folks that I'm interviewing. But then there's also, like, the sad fact that a lot of queer and trans folks don't get to live that long. Mm-hmm. Um One of the scholars who really influenced my work, his name is Horacio N. Roque Ramirez, Um, I just found out a couple days ago, passed away, and he was someone who did a tremendous amount of work. He's an oral oral historian um, documenting queer Latino culture in San Francisco, and um, I feel like his work and this one particular piece he wrote about a queer Latino dance night called Pandoce really taught me the importance of documenting these kinds of cultural events and this culture before it's gone, whether, you know, it ends up, um, moving to other places because of displacement and gentrification, or because the people who create it are, you know, gone before their time.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh. let well, it's, it's, uh, yeah, just dealing with, with loss within the community is just like an ongoing process. So it's, yeah, it feels like it's, it's never ending. Um, so the more important to, to give credit and to, to value folks who are here right now.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the intent behind my work is to make sure that their legacy lives on. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, fortunately, no one that I've interviewed has passed, um, but the hope is, is to sort of immortalize them anyway.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have a you have another book uh, coming out, it's like a volume two. So is that pretty much a continuation just with more artists?
2: Yeah, it is it is very similar in terms of con or not exactly content. I mean there's different artists. And um, the first book was really like fairly focused around the theme of economic survival and like economic survival as an artist. Like how how do you make a living and also um, or like how do you make art and make rent? I think is the way that I phrase it because usually you're not making rent off of your art. Yeah. Um, the second one is not as narrowly economically focused, and I'm still trying to figure out like what sort of the theme is that unites all of the interviews. There are a couple of themes that come up throughout the book like one um, bisexuality is something Mm. that comes up a lot in this book religion is something that comes up a lot in this book Mm. and then punk rock is
3: also a
2: theme (laughs) 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 Uh, which I think is a really interesting and fun sort of collection of themes but like I said I'm still trying to figure out like what what unites the book into a cohesive body of work Um, another thing that's different is that it's a more I would say an even more diverse collection than the first um the first year, the podcast was kind of heavily focused on black and Latino artists. And mm-hmm. so in the second year, I've tried harder to um, incorporate more like East Asian, South Asian, Arab, and indigenous artists. And I think that the second book will reflect that.
0: I see. Oh, cool. Um, so in terms of when you do the interviews, what, um, how do you decide which parts to um, include in the in the book when you're going through the transcripts?
2: That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I guess I ask myself, like, what does this add? Does this add anything? Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes we're just making jokes or going on tangents. Yeah. Sometimes, if anything, if it ever gets, like, a little bit gossipy, I always take that out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's, like, I I cut out everything that doesn't feel completely crucial so that what's left feels like there's no filler. It's all just, like, really... Vital uh, content.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, you know, it's sort of like in depth. Usually, there's like an in depth discussion, description, description, no, discussion. Sorry, that's what I was going for. I'm still waking up.
0: Oh yeah, same here.
2: Um, discussion of like at least one one of their works. Like for um, Indira Allegra who's one of the artists that's going to be in the second book. We talk about this piece she did, which unfortunately the name of it is escaping me right now but um she did this piece about she's like a textile artist well she works in a bunch of different medium a lot of the artists are multimedia artists but she did this installation last year about police violence about black people and she did it by looking at police uniforms and the mm. way that they're the way that the actual fabric is made I guess it's called serge twill oh. the fabric that they um make police uniforms out of. And so she took the pattern, it's called a drawdown, Mm -hmm. um, which is like the pattern that they use to make the fabric and sort of impose that over descriptions of um, police violence to sort of use it as a way to show redaction and like what gets held back or withdrawn from these stories when they go to the media and also how it prevents people from being able to fully... More in their lost family members because there's a denial about the violence that was mm. um, perpetuated against those people by the police.
3: Yes, but
2: don't worry; the whole book is not that heavy. Oh. Well. <laughs> um, I mean, we definitely get into some real stuff, and I think the first book does too. But yeah. there's also um, there's also fun stuff in there. I wish sure. I could think of an example.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's so important to have the, the the serious you know stuff out there, and just to have a uh, for folks to to witness it and to to put it in print, and to acknowledge that it, that is happening, so I guess yeah, that's that's some, sure. something else too with um, <clears throat> in in dealing with I've uh, I've done you know some comedy and there's this idea of how to because I always want to talk about something political and serious and then how to also make it palatable for audiences and how to talk about something serious and um, also either not make light of it, but to express it, and then also for folks who might not be ready to hear it or not wanting to hear it, how to to talk about it in a way that people begin to understand or begin to accept what's actually happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that is, like, the the mark of a really skilled comedian, right? Like, I, I personally love stand comedy, and I've had the the privilege of interviewing a couple of my favorite political comedians, most of them straight, but um uh Hari Kunda W. Kamal Bell mm. and Almer Rahman, are Rahman are um some of my faves that I've had the, the privilege of getting to pick their brain about like how do you do political comedy and, and they've all been doing it for so long, um, and I feel like have been you know, political since they really have taken off or like gained attention for their work that I don't know you know, I actually in my interview with Omar, I asked him because he had a joke. Sorry, this whole interview is gonna be so dark, I just realized it going down to it's, it's
0: perfect for the show.
2: <laughs> uh, he had a he had a joke about the shooting that happened um, in North Carolina of those three Muslim students. I mm. wish I could remember the name of the school, yeah. but it was either last year or the year before. Yes. Um. And and I remember I asked him during the interview, like how how do you decide like when is it too soon? You know, that's a pretty serious. It's a pretty dark thing to be making. Like it's a terrible terrible thing that happened. And like, how do you decide when or how it's okay to make jokes about? Um. And I think. If I remember correctly, this interview is now, like, a little over a year old. What he said was that, like, you know, it's important that the butt of the joke not be the victim, obviously. But the system that tries to... I think at that time, the news outlets were reporting that, like, the shooting was about an argument over a parking space. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what he was making fun of in his joke was the idea that, like, the length of the media would go to to make this not about them being Muslim and how ridiculous that was. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think comedy is really hard and terrifying. Like, I don't personally, I'm a big fan of stand-up, but I don't think I could ever do it myself. Um, and so I really admire people that not only will get up there and tell jokes <laughs> um, in front of potentially hostile audiences, but who are willing to engage with political content in, like, a serious, um, a serious way where it's not punching down at the people that are at the, the business end of oppression yeah. as my co-editor Elena Rose likes to say, but it's punching up at the powers that be and um, you know, the absurdity of, of racism and violence and homophobia
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely I, I completely agree and it's refreshing to see people who, who do that and who, who tackle that in like other uh, areas of art as well um, so, I guess an, another uh, moving moving along. Are there anything um, within the interviews that you found to be surprising or um, anything that, like, really stuck with you that uh, you weren't quite expecting to hear from the people that you talked to?
2: Yeah, I get surprised all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mentioned before my interview with Indira Allegra, in, like, the first couple of minutes in the interview, it was revealed that she... Um, that she is hard of hearing and that she found out that she was hard of hearing while she was working as an AFL interpreter. Mm.
3: Um,
2: Sorry. So she was was interpreting like a meeting or something for one of her deaf clients and the client asked her in sign language, are you lip reading right now? And that's how she figured out that she was losing her hearing. And like, what an intense... What an intense way and time to figure out that you are actually dealing with the disability that you're like, uh, you know, employed to sort of help other people with. I feel like I didn't put that as well as I could have, but I hope you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, Um, yeah. What a way to find out that you're losing your hearing is by having one of your deaf ASL clients call you out for reading lips while you're on your job. Um, you know, I've had people come out to me during interviews about being sex workers, about having, um, survived cancer and homelessness when I didn't know any of that about them going in. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of cool to always be learning during the interviews and to often be surprised. Yeah. um, Because there's only so much you can learn by researching someone's body of work, like, on the internet or seeing them perform. You often learn a lot more when you talk
0: to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I've seen, um, just from like uh, following you on, on Facebook, that you um, do public speaking at colleges and universities. And I was curious if you could talk about that a little bit.
2: Um, I'm not sure. Could what you want
0: me to say <laughs> Oh, I was just curious um, how you got involved with that and um, what your experience has been uh, with, with doing public speaking.
2: I, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I've been able to do as much of it as I have because um, I don't really, like... So one thing about my work is that it's all, like, very... DIY. I don't have any formal training in journalism or podcasting or publishing or anything. <laughs> and so, like, a lot of the ways that people get gigs at colleges or get reviews for their books is, um, you know, maybe they have a booking agent or a manager or a, um, a press mm-hmm. that publishes them, and the press has a publisher, and the publisher can send out, you know, free um, review copies for people or... Book releases, or press releases, or um, press kits for speaking—I don't do any of that, and I'm, I'm not—I'm not trying to brag. I just don't know how to do any of that stuff. Um, I so I feel like I've been incredibly lucky that my work has garnered the attention that it has, and it's all been through um, a lot of it has been through social media. Like when it's it, when it's strangers that are reaching out to me, and um, you know, sometimes it's students that are asking me to come to their school who. Mm-hmm you know, have a job with, um, student services or some kind of department that has access to resources to bring me out. Um, it's, that's largely been through social media. And then, um, I don't I think a lot of it is people finding me online, but then when it comes to promotion and like reviews of the book, a lot of that has been through people I know and specifically like other women of color working in media who have really supported my work. And, um, You know, who freelance or who now work full-time for different media organizations like um, Bitch or Lambda Literary or, uh, like, someone who I don't know, I've never met personally, but who donated to one of my IndieGoGo campaigns for the book, occasionally writes for the advocate, and so, like, put my book on a list of, I think it was actually a list of transgender nonfiction, which is kind of weird cuz I'm not transgender and I feel like that space should be you know uh for trans folks only probably but I was very honored to be included. Yeah. Um so I I never know where my name is going to turn up but okay. I I just feel really uh grateful that the folks who support my work have been so supportive and and I think a lot of it has been word of mouth too. People telling their friends. Yeah. Um because the book is self-published, I, you know, I don't have any, there's no, there's no machine promoting my work and, and making sure it gets into the right hands. It's just me.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, I, I commend you. That's, that's quite, that's, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, quite, quite a lot to do. It's very admirable to be able to do that. Thank um Thank you.
2: Um, I've been, you know, I've been writing zines for ten years, and so I think that before I started doing the book and the podcast, I kind of, you know, I had some DIY media experience, and I think a lot of the skills that I learned, just self-publishing zines, um, have really, really helped, and like continue. I continue to apply those in my, in my media work today. I, I thank punk rock for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, coming back to the punk rock theme.
2: <laughs> oh, that's right.
0: Yeah. Uh, um, so is there like a timeline set up for when the, the second book will be uh coming out or volume two, I should say?
2: Yeah, it's it's coming out in the fall. Um I'm already like I'm so <laughs> I'm so ready to be done editing this book. I just want to yeah. throw a big party and go on tour. Um, so it's I'm not sure whether it'll be done in September or October, but uh it should be done in either late September or early October and then um yeah, there'll be there'll be a launch party. I'm looking awesome. at venues for that now, and then I'm hoping to do a West Coast tour in the fall and an East Coast tour in the spring.
0: Oh, very cool! That's like really exciting.
2: Yeah, I'm I can't wait. <laughs> yeah.
0: is there anything that you like learned from doing the the first volume that you're taking with you um, as you edit the second?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to talk about it without throwing anyone under the bus. <laughs> but um, certainly editing a book and doing it for the first time is, is a learning experience. Um, I mean, there are some things just on the business end that I learned. Like with the first book, um, the first book I didn't know if it was going to make any money and so my co-editors were you know, very generously willing to take a percentage off the back end instead of getting paid anything up front, mm-hmm. and that made sense at the time because, like I said, I didn't know if there would be any money on the back end. But um, as time has gone on, I have sort of realized that, like, I'm going to be paying them a percentage uh, until I die <laughs> or uh-huh. until the book stops making money. And so, um, with the second book, I'm just I fundraise the money to pay my co-editor up front, so I don't have to worry about that yeah. on the back end. Um, and then in the first book also I gave all the artists like three chances to look at the interview and give input and let, uh, let us know if they want us to change anything. And, um, this time I'm, I'm just doing it once cause it's going to streamline the process a lot. Sure. Um, yeah. The first time I had two co-editors, this time I have one. That's not so much like a lesson I learned. It's more of a, um... The the co-editors, the first time, were a couple, and so they worked really well together. But obviously having one co-editor is uh, cheaper than having two. Sure. And, um, yeah, it it also helps streamline the process. So I think the other thing I learned is to start planning the launch party and tour and, like, anything related to promotion and distribution early. Because I think when I finished the first book, I was so burnt out that I didn't really promote it that hard, or, mm. like, there wasn't a tour or anything like that. Um, and to fundraise up front is another thing that's really important. Like, this time I was able to raise almost all the money up front, um, whereas with the first book I had to continually fundraise throughout the process as, like, more and more expenses yes. emerged. yeah. So, yeah, those are those are all things that I learned that I'm applying moving forward and I also took a year off between the two books which I think nice. was uh which I would definitely do again yeah <laughs> if I'm if I'm gonna write a third which I would like to
0: yeah yeah was, there's definitely artists out there which is I mean I feel like here in the Bay Area we're, we're spoiled in that we get a lot of you know folks coming in from out of town and from other places to come in and share their work so yeah just... that's
2: definitely true I think it would be harder for me to do what I do especially with the focus on queer and trans people of color, if I was living in any other place, mm-hmm. um, you know, except for, like, maybe New York, but um, I'm not trying to live in New York right
0: now. Yep, yeah, yeah, I'm an ex-New Yorker, so I definitely feel like out here is a little bit, for now anyway, feels a little bit more welcoming in, in some ways.
2: Yeah, I I feel like, you know, as long as... I don't know. I used to feel like as long as I don't get displaced, there's never going to be a shortage of, like, queer and trans artists of color just here locally in the Bay for me to talk to, you know, not mm-hmm. even not even thinking about people who are coming in from out of town. Yeah. But um, obviously, I mean, like, even with this book that I'm writing now, I think three or four of the artists in it lived in the Bay when I started and have since moved away, so... Mm. Um, you know, displacement is real and, um, I hope that the Bay will continue to be a place where queer and trans artists of color can afford to live, but it is, that's not the way things are, are looking right now.
3: Right.
0: Right. So were you, um, where did you grow up? Are you there? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was curious as to if you grew up out here.
2: Oh no, I, I'm from Boston actually. I'm from oh, the okay. suburbs of Boston, to oh, Okay. Be completely honest. Um but I've been living in the Bay since two thousand
0: eight. Oh, right on. Very cool. Um and how uh, what made you decide to come out here?
2: I came out here to finish my degree at Mills. Mm-hmm. Um before that. I have been living in Denver and before that I've been living in Baltimore.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, yeah, is there anywhere else you'd like to, to go or, like, travel?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I often wish that it was easier for me to take time off work slash that I had money to go, like, interview artists other places. There are a couple of artists in Portland, Oregon that I would really like to interview. Um, Met Gill is one really amazing Afro-Cuban illustrator whose artwork I have up in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, Evan Lee is another one. Uh, Emi Koyama Um, and then there's a bunch of artists in Philly I'd really like to talk to one is um, Chaska Sofia also known as DJ Mm -hmm. Pre-Columbian who's someone I got to see perform when I was like I guess not still in high school but early early in my college (laughs) career Um, I mean there's so many there's so many artists like I would love to be able to like just quit my job and travel and interview artists and have that Pay the bills, but unfortunately, um, you know, the podcast is not really an income generator. It does, like, I do receive enough through donations that it pays for itself that I'm not paying out of pocket for transcription anymore, Mm because all the interviews are transcribed for deaf and hard of hearing access, but, Uh um, yeah, I mean, the dream is just to be able to, like, fly around and talk to people. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's very difficult for, I mean, it's expensive. And of course. And I also have chronic pain, so it's, it's challenging to travel. Um, I'm trying to, I don't know if I'd say I'm trying to do it less because I really enjoy it, but I'm trying to be more strategic about how I do it so that I'm not um, spending so much money and also in so much pain.
0: Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I think we're uh, just about... Um, coming short on, on time now, or I don't know what that sound, what expression that was, but I think we're running a little bit out of time. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share or promote?
2: Um, I guess, you know, people should check out the podcast. We want the airwaves. It's on iTunes. Uh, about half of the episodes, I think I just put out the 56 episode and like half of those are available on iTunes. And The other half are behind a paywall, but if you go to my website, Art Mia, you can find all of them, as well as transcripts, which you can read for free of all the interviews. And then, of course, you can get the book at, um, it's available on Amazon. I would encourage you, especially if you live in the Bay, to get it at a local independent bookstore. Yes. It's carried by Pegasus in Rockridge, Pegasus in Berkeley, um, Modern Times in San Francisco, Laurel Bookstore in Oakland, Show and Tell in Oakland, and also Diesel. I I can't, I don't think I said Diesel already. Uh, Diesel's also in Rockridge. And, um, you can also buy it at my website, ArtActivistNia, or ArtActivistNia.BigCartel.com.
3: Excellent.
2: And, um, yeah, support local artists, support queer and trans artists of color, and, uh, support me if you can.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with us and yeah um, thanks so much for having me on yeah very much look forward to volume two thanks me too <laughs> yeah cool we'll take care and i'll talk to you soon yeah take care right. bye bye so that was an interview from this morning with nia levy king thank you again for calling in and very much look forward to that book coming out so we plan uh, some more music now and we'll have at least one more article maybe two more before the show ends today And yeah, so stay tuned.
3: The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is
0: selecting or choosing.
3: Steady, steady, steady. You steady touch I love so.
0: Welcome back to the weekly review. We are pulling up some articles here. We'll see what we can get to by the end of the episode. Uh, stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. We'll be playing an episode, um, from women's magazine, uh, with Global Val from a couple weeks ago and just getting, uh, everything worked out here at the moment while the articles load. So in terms of what else to do, what else to read before the end of the episode. Uh, I, I'm on the fence because there's an article about, uh, outer space, which is very cool. And in some ways feels very refreshing in that, uh, it gives us other things to, to consider. Um, or, um, or I should say, and, or, cause perhaps we can do both, um, prisoners rights, which is something that's, um, very uh, concerned with. And I feel like most folks should be as well, um, from the intercept. So we'll start off with the, with a serious one and'cause and then we'll see if we can get to the uh uh outer space science uh article so this comes from the intercept, and uh lawyers speak out against uh lawyers speak out about massive hack of prisoners' phone records and this is uh we'll we'll get through as much of this as we can, and then we'll we'll end uh on the on the other article and this was written by Jordan Smith and Micah Lee. Uh, in the summer of 2013, Missouri criminal defense attorney Jennifer Bukowski was preparing for an evidentiary uh, hearing in the case of a pro bono client, Jesse McKim. The stakes were high. Along with his co-defendant, James Pevier, McKim had been convicted in 1999 of killing a woman named Wendy Wagnon and was serving life without parole at a maximum security prison. At the upcoming hearing, Bukowski planned to argue that her client was innocent and that the murder that sent him to die in prison was never a murder at all. McKim was convicted in part based on the testimony of a local medical examiner who claimed that the presence of uh, petechiae uh, on a dead body, small spots on the skin or the whites of the eyes where capillaries have hemorrhaged is proof that a person was suffocated but a toxicology report completed after Wagnon's cause of death had already been determined as asphyxiation revealed that Wagnon had lethal levels of uh, methamphetamine in her system when she died. Among the the witnesses, Bukowski planned to call at the hearing were five different pathologists who would testify that the state's medical examiner was wrong when he claimed Wagnon was suffocated, and that the evidence pointed to a meth overdose instead. A sixth sixth pathologist, retained as an expert by the state, also agreed that Wagnon died of an overdose, not of suffocation. It was a really big time, and a crucial time for this case, Bukowski recalls. As she prepped witnesses and decided who else should take the stand, she shared her strategy with McKim via lengthy phone calls. Calls understood to be protected by attorney-client privilege. Unlike calls between prisoners and their family or acquaintances, which are routinely monitored, conversations with lawyers are not to be recorded. During these calls, says Bukowski, I'm telling him my concerns about calling this or that person. That is crucial information that should be private between us. The hearing took place in August 2013. The following spring, a circuit court judge ruled against McKim, upholding his conviction and saying that even if Wagnon was not suffocated, McKim and his co-defendant could have killed her another way, by intentionally forcing her to overdose on meth, a theory the state had never previously argued, for which there was no supporting evidence. Bukowski was confirmed confounded by the ruling but remained undeterred she is convinced of mckim's innocence and knows from experience that in a system that favors finality undoing an unjust conviction can be frustrating work it takes a lot of grit and it makes me angry she wrote in an email last fall bukowski received an unexpected phone call related to mckim's case the call came from the intercept following our november 11th 2015 report on a massive hack of Securus Technologies, a Texas-based prison telecommunications company that does business with the Missouri Department of Corrections. As we reported at the time, The Intercept received a massive database of more than 70 million call records belonging to Securus and coming from prison facilities that use the company's so-called secure call platform. Leaked via secure drop by a hacker who was concerned that Securus might be violating prisoners' rights, the call records span a two-and-a-half-year period beginning in in late 2011, the year Securus won its contract with the Missouri DOC, and ending in the spring of 2014. Although Securus did not respond to repeated requests for comment for a November report, the company released a statement condemning the hack shortly after the story was published. Securus insisted that there was absolutely no evidence that any attorney-client calls had been recorded without the knowledge and consent of the parties to each call. The Intercept's analysis, to the contrary, estimated that the hacked data included at least 14,000 records of conversations between inmates and attorneys. In the wake of the story's publication, we informed Bukowski that her phone number had been found among the records and provided her a spreadsheet of the calls made to her office, including the name of the client and the date, time, and duration of the calls. In turn, Bukowski searched her case files for notes and other records, ultimately confirming that at least one call with McKim, which was prearranged with the Missouri DOC to be a private attorney call, was included in the data. The privileged call, more than 30 minutes long, was made at the height of Bukowski's preparations for McKim's hearing. A unique recording uh, URL accompanied each of Bukowski's calls included in the data, suggesting that audio had been recorded and stored for more than two years, and ultimately comprised by the uh, unprecedented data breach. The discovery was distressing. I was in the thrust of litigating with the state attorney general's office, a very hotly disputed uh, habeas petition, and I was acting under good faith that they were not recording, she said, and it appears they were. The ability of counsel and client to communicate confidentially is a cornerstone of the American legal system. The recording, monitoring, or storage of such legally protected communications not only chills the attorney-client relationship, but may also run afoul of constitutional protections, including the right to effective assistance of counsel and access to the courts. The mass recording of inmate calls is itself a fairly recent practice sold by private telecommunications companies like Securus to jails and prisons as a security measure, a way to thwart violent uprisings, for example, or curb the introduction of contraband into a facility. This bulk surveillance, the recording and long-term storage of millions and millions of routine communications, raises serious concerns about the privacy rights of incarcerated persons and their loved ones, says David Fathi, director of the ACLU's National Prison Project. And indeed, while incarceration may may, um, compromise some individual rights, a detainee's right to confidential communication with an attorney is not one that can be trampled by the state or a private company. In criminal cases, the attorney client privilege, bars defense attorneys from disclosing or prosecutors from using any case-related information obtained in confidence. It is, says Fafi, the oldest privilege of confidentiality known in our legal system. After The Intercept exposed the Securus hack, numerous defense attorneys contacted us to find out whether the database contained any of their call data. As we previously reported, the data contained 1.3 million unique telephone numbers to determine if the 70 million call records contained attorney-client calls. We did a reverse lookup of each number, finding that at least 14,000 calls were made to attorneys. But because the reverse lookup was limited to a commercial directory, and because we searched only the business listings that included the words attorney, law, or legal, we concluded that we were likely missing thousands of additional calls, including those made to attorney cell phone numbers, which would not necessarily be listed in a commercial directory. The attorneys... Who contacted The Intercept helped advance our investigation into the data by identifying additional phone numbers as belonging to lawyers, which were not previously included in our estimate. We have now identified at least 43,000 additional records of attorney-client communications, including both attempted and completed calls, contained within the hacked data. But again, because the subsequent searches were done only for attorneys who reached out to The Intercept, we suspect that we are still many more attorney-client call records not yet identified. identified uh, in the data. Among these additional records are more than 33,000 calls that detainees placed to lawyers working for Missouri's state public defender's office, and more than 1,000 made to the Midwest Innocence Project, which handles wrongful conviction cases in Missouri and four other states. That the hack contained so many calls to the MIP is distressing to the nonprofit's executive director, Oliver Burnett. It really gave us pause, and I think it can really hinder how we try to do business for the most vulnerable among us, those people who are in jail and may be innocent, he said. As with Bukowski's calls, some of those these additional records correspond to phone conversations arranged with prison officials to be confidential attorney-client communications, which never should have been recorded. After a detailed review of several specific fields contained within the hacked records, The Intercept has been able to narrow the geographical scope of the recorded calls, tracing all of the detainee call records to Missouri prison facilities. Although, as we previously reported, the database reflects calls to at least 37 states, the vast majority, 85%, were made to phone numbers in Missouri. An additional 5% were placed to numbers with Kansas and Illinois area codes, states that border Missouri's largest cities, Kansas City and St. Louis. Each phone record includes the name of the prisoner making the call, an acronym for a location that maps to a correctional facility in Missouri, as well as an identification number that appears to correspond with Missouri DOC prisoner IDs. The records do not include the number from which each phone call originated. For Bukowski, who founded her eponymous firm in Columbia in 2010, the potential for damage was vast. In the August 2013 hearing in McKim's case, the state called to the stand a woman, Melissa McFarland, who was with Wagnon just before her death, and then implicated McKim in that death. A circumstance Bukowski would have discussed with McKim. So for them to hear me, if they're listening to me, which I don't know if they did, but were they too? they would know all the different things that I'm saying to my client that I think are problems for McFarland that I'm going to cross-examine her on, and they could then prep her accordingly. In an email response to The Intercept, a spokesperson for the Missouri Attorney General said that its office did not have access or listen to any phone calls between Mikowski and McKim. Mikowski notes that violating attorney-client confidentiality in the manner that appears to have happened could still be happening, whether in Missouri or any of the jurisdictions where Securus operates, which include 47 states and the District of Columbia, as well as Canada and Mexico, is just another way the odds are stacked in favor of the state in criminal prosecutions." So uh, that's the first half of the article. Um, it's posted on our our Facebook page, and you also find it on the Intercept. I'm going to go into the the next article, and because we're running uh, running low on time, and want to um, just add, add end on a on a different type of note. There's also uh, other things going on in Michigan, um, uh, in addition to the, 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 water crisis there and the people in positions of power not being held accountable, they've decided to pass a ban on sodomy, which is fucked up. First time I've sworn today on the show and glad, uh, it took this long to do it, but there's a lot of messed up things happening in the world and we'll be rep- reporting on that a bit next week. There's just a lot to get to. So we're running out of time and this article comes from the BBC, uh, this is just science and environment because it's also... I feel important to talk about what else is going on out there and also just uh, recognize other possibilities of what's happening in the universe at large. So uh, Einstein's gravitational waves seen from black holes. And this was written by uh, Paleb Ghosh, and this came out on February 11th. Scientists are claiming a stunning discovery in their quest to fully understand gravity. They have observed the warping of space time generated by the collision of two black holes more than a billion light years from Earth. The international team says the first detection of these gravitational waves will usher in a new era for astronomy. is the culmination of decades of searching and could ultimately offer a window on the big bang the research by the LIGO collaboration has been published today in the journal physical review letters the collaboration operates a number of labs around the world that fire lasers through long tunnels trying to sense ripples in the fabric of space-time the signals they detect are incredibly subtle and disturb the machines known as inferometers just by fractions of the width of an atom. But this black hole merger was picked up almost simultaneously by two widely separated LIGO facilities in the U.S. The merger radiated three times the mass of the sun in pure gravitational energy. We have detected gravitational waves, Professor David Reitzer, executive director of the LIGO project, told journalists at a news conference in Washington, D.C., it's the first time the universe has spoken to us through gravitational waves up until now we've been deaf professor karsten donsmann from the max planck institute for gravitational physics and leibniz university in hanover germany is a european leader on the collaboration he said the detection was one of the most important developments in science since the discovery of the higgs particle and on par with the determination of the structure of dna there is a Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize in it, there is no doubt, he told the BBC. It is the first ever direct uh, direct detection of gravitational waves. It's the first ever direct detection of black holes, and it is a confirmation of general relativity, because the property of these black holes agrees exactly with what Einstein predicted almost exactly 100 years ago. Um So here's a few uh, facts here. Uh, Gravitational waves are prediction of the theory of of general relativity. Their existence has been inferred by science, but only now directly detected. There are ripples in the fabric of space and time produced by violent events. Uh, Accelerating masses will produce waves that propagate at the speed of light. Detectable sources ought to include merging black holes and neutron stars. Ligo fires lasers into two long L-shaped tunnels. The waves disturb the light. Detecting the, the waves opens up the universe to completely new investigations. Uh, and that view was reinforced by Professor Stephen Hawking, who is an expert on black holes. Speaking exclusively to BBC News, he said he believed that the detection marked a key moment in scientific history. Gravitational waves provide a completely new way at looking at the universe. The ability to detect them has the potential to revolutionize astronomy. This discovery is the first detection of a black hole binary system and the first observation of black holes merging, he said. Apart from, the test, apart from testing Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity, we could hope to see black holes through the history of the universe. We may even see relics of the very early universe during the Big Bang at some of the most extreme energies possible. Team member Professor Gabriela Gonzalez from Louisiana State University said, We have discovered gravitational waves from the merger of the black holes. It's been a very long road, but this is just the beginning. Now that we have the detectors to see these systems, now that we know binary black holes are out there, we'll begin listening to the universe. the lego The LIGO laser Uh, infirmary meters in Hanford in Washington and in Livingston in Louisiana were only recently refurbished and had just come back online when they sensed the signal from the collision. This occurred at 1051 uh, Greenwich Mean Time on September 14th last year. On a graph, the data looks like a symmetrical wiggly line that gradually increases in height and then suddenly fades away. We found a beautiful signature on the merger of two black holes, and it agrees exactly, fantastically, with the numerical solutions to Einstein's equations. And it looked too beautiful to be true, said Professor Donsman. Uh, professor sheila rowan who is one of the lead uk researchers involved in the project said that the first detection of gravitational waves are just the start of a terrifically exciting journey the fact that we are sitting here on earth uh, feeling the actual fabric of the universe stretch and compress slightly due to the merger of black holes that occurred just over a billion years ago i think that's phenomenal it's amazing that when we first turned on our detectors the universe was ready and waiting to say hello the glasgow university scientist told the, the bbc being able to detect gravitational waves enables astronomers to finally to probe what they call dark universe the majority part of the cosmos that is invisible to the light to the light telescopes use uh uh today to the that is invisible to the light telescopes in use today all right, so uh, there's a little bit more info here on the article, but we're going to wrap up the show now. And so, stay tuned for uh, Global Val with Women's Magazine. Let's play some music to round out the the show here. Um, Try to get some good music uh, for us before the show started. So let's end on a on a on a good good song here. This may take a moment just to get set up. Um, and what do we have? What do we have here? This will take just a moment and uh yeah here's a song there's a video out that's pretty awesome oh and it works well because they shot it in an airplane in the sky and it's about gravity and stuff so this is okay go with upside down inside out thanks everybody for listening thanks again to nia levy king for calling in and we'll be back next week
4: LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to punk, Mutiny Radio. FM has the best programming the internet ocean has to offer ya. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced MacRat. <laughs> hey.